oh my god mum was right (laughs) (laughs) it's terrible isn't it (laughs) then you hear yourself saying things that your parents said to you oh no surely not Welcome to Rosie on Recruitment, a podcast on recruitment, career, and more. I'm your host, Rosie Nathan, partner and senior sourcing specialist at Customized Talent Group, chief commercial officer at Her Career, chartered manager, and mentor. I'm here with my featured guests, ranging from executives to graduates and candidates to hiring managers, to provide you with valuable insights and tips to help you get the most out of recruitment, whatever side you're on. In this episode, I'm absolutely honoured to be joined by Rob Campbell, Professional Director, Chancellor of Auckland University of Technology, Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit, and Chartered Fellow of the Institute of Directors. Rob's a New Zealand businessman icon. But deeper than that, he's a genuine Kiwi guy who consistently stands up for what he believes in, championing causes not just in business, but for New Zealand communities. He takes steps, opens conversations, and considers a wide scope, making a positive impact through networks and associations to increase awareness and promote action. His success is indisputable, his road to the top a squiggly line of opportunities taken, even if not always popular, and bridging gaps with people in a way that has displayed emotional intelligence, empathy, and understanding. Rob has, from his early career, had a unique ability to understand complexity and deliver with relevance to specific audiences, some saying in his earlier union days that he appeared to have a social conscience and a working-class heart as well. I'm so grateful he's here to spend time sharing with me, so it's an absolute pleasure to warmly welcome Rob to the Rosie on Recruitment and Career podcast. Shall we just jump right on in? Yep, I'm good to go. Excellent. What does recruitment and career mean to you? Let me start with career first. I haven't had a career. I've kind of had a series of accidents, which happily enough for me have worked out okay. But a career, I think, is something that ideally you plan or at least think about. And I've kind of, I haven't done that. It's worked out for me, but I don't think one should rely on it working out that way. So a career to me is how you plan and what you do during your working life. And I think like most things, if you think about it ahead and create something for yourself, it will be more satisfying for you and you'll do it better. It doesn't mean it won't change. My father worked all of his working life for one organisation, 15 to whatever age he was when he retired. And it wasn't that uncommon in his day. I don't think anyone today could rationally be thinking that way. And I don't think they should. They should be thinking about a lot of change ahead of them and and how they cope with change. So that's what a career for me is, is the planning with flexibility of of what you're going to do with your working life. Recruitment, I'm kind of equally ignorant of because I've been through a couple of assessment processes for board positions, but I've never actually been recruited as such, I don't think, in my working life either. So I've kind of stumbled from job to job and, and I don't think people can or should rely on that. I'm hesitant about the recruitment industry I've got to say, this is a bad way yeah. to start it. We touched on that. Little, Please do share. Bad way to discuss it. I think that the recruitment industry, as I experience it in New Zealand, is pretty much a paint-by-numbers system. I think people 
they'll have a, what old people like me call a Rolodex full of names that they add to and maybe subtract when they die, although I have known a couple of long lists that had people, if they weren't dead, were certainly severely ill on them. So add and subtract to it. It's a list, and that's kind of what they offer. That's the, They're a shop. They sell people. These are the people they have, just like those are the donuts I have if I'm a donut shop. And I think that's not very satisfactory for the people yeah. who use their services, whether they're employees or the potentially employers. Mm. Now, having said that, employers probably get the recruitment agencies they deserve. I've thought about this mm. since we last talked. Good. <laughs> so I think that as a broad criticism of employers, and I mean myself and people I work with in yep. that as I've reflected on it, are probably not very good at defining roles or defining how roles will change or defining the kind of people who are most suited to that. Mm. And therefore, they probably often ask the wrong questions of recruitment agency. So yes. if you've got two people who are not thinking properly about <laughs> the issue, the chances that they're going to reach a good outcome are quite small, aren't they? Yes. So we're both pretty lucky. I think most appointments are probably okay. Um <laughs> But, but I don't think we do it on either side as well as we could. Some great points to talk about there. So I wanted to start with the experience with your father. My father was exactly the same. He worked in the same role from when he left school. He was a bus driver and worked on the yellow buses for all of his lifetime. So yeah, it was a very different path that I wanted to take in line with that. And I definitely see millennials. I had a conversation with a graduate and she talked about putting together a mosaic career, really wanting to put those flavors together. And then in terms of recruitment, one of the pieces that I really implore the employers to consider is potential versus historical skill sets and ambition and attitude, because those are things that people really generally cannot be taught. And so if they come in with a lot of that, really understanding your candidates and treating them as humans, as you say, those are all reasons I joined recruitment myself and want to get these types of words out. And I think it's really heartening to hear someone like yourself challenge and what recruitment has been and look to the ideal and implore employers to do a better job. Yeah, I think, again, reflecting on this, at the moment I'm actually sitting in Auckland University of Technology right. talking to you and as I walk into this particular building, there's a service which is open to students called the Employment Lab where there are people employed, skilled in talking to people, not just about what courses they should do, but about mm. what their aspirations are, how they fit into that and and not just their work aspirations, but their life aspirations yeah. are. I've had the opportunity to talk with the people down there about it. And if that was available when I went to university, you know, that's, a, I think, a huge improvement. And I think schools probably got a little better at that. But I think that there's a whole area of service provision, particularly in our secondary schools, that could much better prepare people for work. And I absolutely yeah. don't mean that in the sense of becoming factories producing workers for employers. I'm at the opposite end to that, mm. but working with young people to help them define their aspirations in life, including work, and then to define what sort of things they might study, where they might look, how they might go. I know schools try to do that, but they're desperately under-resourced to do it, and probably the system isn't really flexible enough to react for every student to that. So you end up with a lot of people missing out or being misplaced or 
getting the support they need to get there. So, you know, that is introducing, for example, more Māori and Pacifica students into some university courses, which is good. It's got a long way to go. But I think there's a whole area there of helping young people to think about work and life and to prepare themselves for working life better that we don't currently do very well. So, yes, just a resource question. But if you haven't done that, then when you come along to your recruitment agency saying, I think I want to be this or that, you probably wasted quite a few years mm. in terms of getting ready for this or that or, yeah. or even knowing what bit of this or that suits you, haven't you? So I would like to think that we would take our thinking about jobs and recruitment back into the earlier years and not see it just as a workplace thing. Yeah, I've got a 15-year-old son. So having exposure under the hood, I talk about this with mentees, exposure under the hood of what jobs actually look like so that they can be more prepared because there's also that consideration of that's the job I want to do, but they don't recognize the realism of what that role actually is or what they will need to perform it. Yeah, and don't want to put it all on the young people or the education system either. Employers are a bit reluctant to think about the people they're going to employ. They would rather think about the jobs they want done and then try to mm. find the people to fit them or sort of fit them. So we're probably not very good in thinking about job roles in most of our organizations. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're pretty rigid the systems we use, particularly in larger employers. I know it's a difficult problem to match individuals to roles, but some of those old old systems that are still being used a lot, again, I'm not advertising for anyone or criticizing anyone. They are pretty rigid. Yeah, we've talked on that before. We could do better than that. I think so too. So being that you're at AUT at the moment, this next question kind of links. You originally believed you would pursue a career as an academic. So how did that pivot into union work change your trajectory? And have you got any regrets around that or any of your direction shifts during your career? Oh, crikey. <laughs> I sometimes think I wish I had stayed in a university role. I didn't like teaching much, but I see some people around here who have got many research roles and I think, wow, that doesn't look bad. That, <laughs> that could have been me. <laughs> That lifestyle, yeah. So I do occasionally have that feel. But look, I transferred into union work as a result of a random meeting mm. with some union people when I was involved with, I can't remember now whether it was an anti-apartheid or an anti-Vietnam war process I was involved with at the time, but it was one of those. And uh, meeting and drinking with a group of trade union people, they suggested, given that I was in teaching economics, I might well help them with a view of how the road transport industry worked. And I did that and I found it really interesting and I loved the involved people concerned. And it just kind of escalated from there to becoming a full-time occupation and then broadening out from being a researcher to being an activist and I guess what you'd call a leader, but certainly a, uh, someone in a leadership position. So certainly wasn't a career plan, wasn't recruited for that. In terms of roles I've taken on, look, I've regretted most of them at some stage. <laughs> Brilliant to hear. When they got harder and and, you know, some have been unpleasant experiences. Mm. Some have been enjoyable. In each of them, there's been an intellectual interest, which kind of drives me as the how does this work? What's yep. it about? Lucky to have a whole series of those things of trying to find out what went on and hopefully making some contributions. So, yeah, I've regretted events. Have I regretted taking on any particular jobs? Not, not a great deal. You can always move anyway. You know, I mean, yes. there's very few jobs these days where they actually lock the door and won't let you out. Yeah. <laughs> 
I've shared that view before, you know, you really get to make the choice. So there's a difference between venting around an event in a role or in an organization and working towards solutions around that or sitting and whinging and making no change and deciding to continue to stay. I'm an advocate for the first vent. And if the solutions you're presenting aren't making the change required, move on. I'm not a tree with roots. <laughs> yeah, I was making the point the other night in the Institute of Directors meeting yes. where they were silly enough to invite me to talk and directors often say, oh, the risks are going up or this or that. This, we've all got little grizzles about our job. And I, yeah. I made the point that my observation was there were far more people standing outside the boardroom wanting to get in than there were people standing inside the boardroom wanting to get out. And that must tell you something. That leads on really well to the next question because I know you've talked about New Zealand needing more women on boards. And in my recent graduate panel session, uh, one of the attendees also mentioned that companies and boards say they want more young voices, but not necessarily young people. So how can organisations better bridge this gender and age gap in governance? Let's deal with the gender one first, yeah. if we can, because I think they fall into different categories. Absolutely. In business leadership, women are treated as if they're a minority, which they're not. So just arithmetically, let's accept that women are in the majority or a narrow majority, but at least let's call them 50-50. So there are really no arguments other than sexism to not have women on boards at mm. roughly 50-50. I personally don't care if every board is 50-50. It's probably a bit rigid. But these movements around the world for the 40-40-20 idea on boards, I think, have a lot of merit. Boards largely on paper, boards of directors are voted on by shareholders. That's true. But the current board actually drives the future board. They yeah. put up the proposals. Vanishingly few directors get voted on from outside what the board recommendation is. So you can effectively say the current board appoints the future board. Now, I think you can probably immediately see the floor in that because we all do <laughs> yes. people like us. And then when we do appoint women, we tend to appoint the women who are most like a man. It's not a criticism of women on boards. There are some wonderful female directors, yes. but they've had to fight through yes. that process of a board looking around and saying, well, we need, I think it's in My Fair Lady, Professor Higgins has that song where he says, why can't a woman be more like a man? And I think that's kind of the way many boards still feel. I think that's just got to be stopped. And to me, I think we're very close to quotas on large company boards. Mm. And I think we have to because it's not moving fast enough. There's plenty of qualified women around to do the job. So to me, that's kind of almost yesterday's argument, or it should be. Mm. And so we've just got to do it. And if that means quotas, then fine, let's, let's have quotas. There's been a quota forever, which just a quota of 100% old white men. Um, so yes. all we're doing is... All we're really doing is changing the quota. <laughs> yes, that's a great way to look at it. Ethnicity is another issue and ability, disability, different kind of perspectives. Boards need that. I think that's probably harder to quota for. Mm. I'm not saying I wouldn't quota for it in, in some situations. I think we probably should and could, but I think it's harder to have sweeping quotas. Businesses have different things they're doing, different people they're employing, different customers they're serving. So the aim should be to have stakeholders, whoever are the stakeholders in a particular activity, reasonably represented on the board is, is what I would say. And if someone says to me, well, that's not happening, we've got to have a quota, I'm pretty relaxed about that, but it's, it's just slightly more difficult. 
On the young people, it is a bit harder because really young people have a lot to offer leadership. The board is not entirely about leadership. In board situations, you are applying experience of work and of the industry to a significant extent. So I think it's hard for a really young person. Basically, they're all young to me. Most of the are young. <laughs> I'm feeling that way at the moment too. <laughs> I'm talking about people in their 20s who would probably see themselves as young. I think it's harder in most boards for them to feel they can contribute mm. and probably to contribute in the boardroom. I do have some young people of that sort of age come and say to me, you know, I'd love to get on a board. How do I get onto a board? Kind of makes me sigh because it's the best thing you can think of when you're in your 20s is getting onto a company board. It's pretty bloody sad commentary, isn't it? I had a lot more interesting things I was doing in my 20s than <laughs> yes. that. I thought, well, I thought they were at the time. But we do have to find a way. So I think it's more about exposure too, isn't it? People in their 30s and 40s, you do not have to be at the end of a career yes. to be a good contributor to a board, which was kind of the old pattern. Mm-hmm. We're moving a bit away from that, and I think we could move forward. So I think people reasonably early or in mid-career, mid-working life can contribute significantly and gain as well. So we can certainly move that age range down substantially. Mm. But we all need to find better ways of communicating to and from people in their teens and 20s for economic reasons, because they're significant consumers and significant parts of the workforce. But also that is where the ethos of the world is moving. It's always moving to its young people. So any kind of business activity needs to understand that and to be able to access it and pick it up. I suspect that's not necessarily done best at the board table. Probably opening up the business at other levels to those expressions and making sure the board has a mechanism for hearing them. Don't necessarily think it has to be that you have those people represented. Having said that, I'm certainly not opposed to having a young person on our boards. Just, Just think it's harder to make it work. Yeah, you've touched on an important part there. I look at the 20-year-olds of today and with my work at Her Career and working with entry and mid-level women and also through recruitment, young graduates, there is an amount of competition which has increased in ambition. Just it feels different from what it was in my 20s. I know that was a reasonable time ago now. However, they are looking for the next thing and it's more about this exposure so that they can take those career planned steps. So it's how How do we enable that exposure and understanding of process so that they can gain that experience while not necessarily having the responsibility of the governance role? So there should be some intermediary in between that allows that understanding, that knowledge to be gained that then when they step in potentially at later 20s, 30s, et cetera, they've got a feel for it. We don't have a silver bullet. By and large, the future's not being created in boardrooms. The task in boardrooms is to stop boardrooms just recreating creating the past, but that yes. doesn't mean that they're naturally the kind of place that the future is being created. Yeah. And it's where young people should be really focused. Yeah. In the mid-80s, when you left the unions, you shared how you were diagnosed with cancer, became very depressed and were consuming a lot of alcohol, all while still functioning at a really high level. We know COVID increased drinking habits and put people under all types of work-from-home stresses. So I was really curious about how you got back on track from your challenges and what advice you would give others that are, are struggling with that balance now. 
Yeah, well, your description is quite right of the state that I was in, and I managed to function in that way for probably a, an unreasonably long time. Shouldn't happen, but there are high-functioning depressives, high-functioning alcoholics, high-functioning this and that. Mm. That might be to some extent a reflection on culture and senior executive and, and boardroom levels, but it certainly wasn't uncommon at the time, and I think not uncommon now. Yeah. From my point of view, I keep saying, why didn't someone tell me this was bad for me before the truth of course is that they did they did (laughs) this is resonating with me this question that's why I'm really interested I wasn't a real good listener so like many things that happened in my life the biggest change in in that respect for me was meeting a guy called Dave Latelli I met him at a function at Sky City which was for a really group of Pacifica people who had asked me to help them with a fundraiser and we were and Dave was there because he knew them yeah. and was supportive of them. They called My River and they're a very good group of people. And so I was scoffing glasses of wine and Dave tells me eating sausage rolls. I don't know if that's embarrassment <laughs> or not, but I was, I was sitting there drinking wine. And somehow we got into a conversation about health, partly because we were standing alongside the ex-all black Kevin Mialama, who was still right. pretty fit. Yeah, and, that'll uh, do it. Yeah, I'm standing between these two really fit guys. <laughs> For some reason, they turned the discussion to health. I can't think why. And I said, oh, you know, I should do something about my house. You know, it's not good and all this sort of stuff. He actually grabbed the glass of wine and took it off and said, well, should I put, that down, put that down for a start and I'll train you if you like. And oh, yeah, you know, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, I'll see you at six o'clock in the morning outside. So we both turned up at six o'clock in the morning, both thinking the other guy wouldn't be Was there. It? Yep. <laughs> and we were. And now a super quick word from our sponsor. A big thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Customized Talent Group, a New Zealand-owned and operated recruitment agency with an innovative, unique, and personalized approach. At Customized Talent, Michael Viner leads a team of nine partners who deliver exceptional service with a model that ensures partners are rewarded for developing long-standing, trusted relationships that have client and candidate best interests at heart. Customized can provide the recruitment partnership you've been searching for, sourcing outstanding talent while providing the highest levels of care and communication to support requirements and business objectives. Check out customizedtalent.com and the show notes for contact details. Anyway, I thought, well, we'll go into the Sky City Gym, which I had a key to, yeah. not a frequently used key, but... <laughs> And uh, we got up there and Dave had a look around and I said, so what are we going to do? He said, well, we're going outside. We don't work out in gyms. Only white men work out in gyms. <laughs> it's not entirely true, of course, but it, it had the desired effect on me. And yep. it was raining and cold. And I was feeling this was a bad idea already. Anyway, he, we went out and his idea was that we would run up Liverpool Street, which is quite steep. Yeah, I know it. So we did manage to get up. I couldn't claim to have run, but we walked up it and walked around a bit. And then he took me down and we did some press-ups on the benches outside Sky City with various Sky City staff walking past and either laughing uproariously or trying to hide that. Anyway, slightly long way of telling the story, but from there I worked out for some years, pretty much most mornings with Dave outside and a couple of other guys who were on a very different journey to me, but a health journey from very different parts of society. And we became all became very close friends. We still 
work out together quite a lot. I'm now very involved with just doing some of the kind of old man's funding stuff for Dave's incredible activities throughout Auckland. And I'm privileged to be part of that gang now. You know, I've been patched over. I've even been given a hoodie, which looks very much like a gang hoodie, which is actually BBM regalia. But yeah, I've been fully patched over into that. So that, you know, wonderful experience. Very lucky to have it. Been very good for my health in every way. I readily admit depression doesn't disappear. So it's something, can't take a pill and make it go away. You can take a pill and make it feel better. You can drink a bottle of wine and it feels better for a while. And there's lots of things you can do to make it feel better. You can go and exercise and you feel better. The beer is still there when you come back. That's just something you learn to live with. But look, everybody has something they have to learn to live with. It just happens to be one of mine and I was treating it the wrong way. Yeah, it's a fully notable lifestyle transformation. I mentioned when I reached out to you, that was part of the motivation. I love seeing the work that you partner with Dave on and think that the community involvement that he has is so positive. So it's just great to see that connection happen in such a tangible way. Yeah, and, and you know, I've, I know I've just gained so much from that whole community of people. Mm. And, you know, one of the things I reflect on a bit about that is I really did enjoy the union world and the relationships I've formed, close relationships with a lot of working class people and was sad when I left that and rejoining, if you like, you're having the opportunity to not be locked in the lifestyle of a senior executive or board yeah. member, being able to escape from it sometimes has been a, an enormous gift to me because it's easy to get locked in a lifestyle of the group that are like you mm, yes, and not move out of it. Being able to see the richness and depth and problems of other people's lifestyles has made me sort of quite intolerant of some of what people think are problems when they're on a million dollars a year. Yeah. I think there's just an absolute honesty to it. Like I said, my dad was a bus driver. My mum held three part-time roles. We were living absolutely rent week to rent week. And I've still got a number of family members in that situation. You know, I was lucky enough to grow my career in ways that a, a number of my family members haven't. There is that conversation around those people that you surround yourself with. And yes, that should be aspirational, but you also need some reality within that sphere. Yeah, I'm not dewy-eyed about it. I was chatting to some people a few years ago now about the differences across the whole range of society that you might mix in. And yes. I expressed the view then, and it's still my view now, that the proportion of great people and bastards doesn't change an awful lot across the various classes in society. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, you might hope that it does, but it doesn't a hell of a lot. Yeah, that's very true. So what makes you unhappy about how some businesses or leaders operate and what makes you most hopeful? Look, obviously I worry about some of the bad things that businesses do, the exploitation, the environmental mm. things, etc. I'm not belittling those, but I worry about those bad things that we do because so much of what we do is done through business. Therefore, a lot of the bad things in the world have a business connection. More nowadays, I am a bit sad that we don't take advantage of the greater opportunities that the workplace and business create as well. We develop and grow through our work as well as our other relationships. And the fact that we in many organisations don't really encourage or allow that to happen is, I think, something I am sad about. I think that a lot of the techniques and knowledge that we've developed in science and in business and all the technical skills could be directed a whole lot better to well-being than they are. So I'm sad about the good things that we could do and don't do more than I am about the bad things. 
things, frankly. Yeah. Might be easy for someone in my position to say. Someone who was having a lot of bad things to done to them might say, if my all that stuff stopped kicking me in the head. And yeah. I understand that. But the honest answer is I get more sad about the opportunities we're missing than necessarily the bad things we're doing. What career failure or challenge has impacted you most, do you think? And what was your greatest lesson from that? It's a long time ago, but yeah. my recognition personally that I couldn't cope and I wasn't really fitted to the trade union role that I was undertaking right. was the hardest realisation and it's continued to impact my life since then. So right. recognising that I was doing something that I I loved, I thought was valuable and still do, but that I couldn't cope with it, couldn't do it, was still a source of stress and sadness, etc. cetera, too. You know, one else cares about that, nor should they, because I've gone on to be fine. But that's the biggest thing. And what it did teach me, though, was that you could change, you could shift your focus. Some people would say I shifted it from good to evil, and others might say I shifted it from evil to good, for all I know. But the point is, you can shift it, you can move on and do other things and develop yourself in other ways. So I think that's an important lesson to have. But certainly, the biggest change that occurred in my life. It's interesting because sometimes those things happen in internally where you have that realization or I've spoken to a lot of people post COVID that were disestablished and it wasn't until three, six months later or that they're in a new role that they realized how unhappy they were in a particular role doing something that they thought they loved or were good at. And then they have this whole new opportunity to do something else. Yeah. It's really interesting when those realizations come up and how they can be affected dependent on what happens with your next step in your path. Yeah, I do really wish when I observe people, which I do in sort of a number of walks of life, doing something they're good at, fitted for and passionate about, I feel a bit jealous. That's not a nice thing. I should just feel admiration, shouldn't I? But I do. It's very human. It's very whole human, Rob. I also do feel jealous because I've never really had that, I don't think. Right. In my last two roles, I don't believe there was a complete culture alignment to my values and beliefs. And stepping into this role in recruitment and making a very conscious choice choice of the type of people I wanted to work with and how I wanted to share my voice and assist people in the ways that I feel could be valuable and finding so fulfilling. What's really interesting is catching up with people over the last five years that I've previously worked with who continuously comment on just how happy I look <laughs> and just that I've obviously really found something that does resonate. So yeah. I hope it stays that way. Me too. <laughs> So new managers can find it difficult to move from colleague or peer into a mindset that takes a wider decision-making focus. They may also personally impact those they know. What do you think they could do if they're struggling with this as a leader? Well, old Rob would say... Harden up. You don't have to take on the position. If you took it on and there are hard things about it, well, that's down to you. And I still think that's true to some extent in any kind of leadership position. I don't think the model of leadership has to be, I'm the tough guy, I take the tough decisions at all. But even so, in really any leadership positions, you are having to make judgments and calls that often will at least have an immediately adverse effect on on people. Mm. Uh, They may not perceive the benefits even when there are benefits to them. And sometimes there aren't benefits. 
benefits. I think you have to learn that the way you do things and the way you communicate things is often as important as what you do. So if you are making a decision which is tough for others, having respect. A chap called Francois Barton, who is a leader in work safety in New Zealand, had a discussion with me the other day about some of these things. And he made point, I'll quote Francois because I can't remember who he was quoting from. The key thing in all relationships, and particularly in work relationships, was dignity. He thought we should talk more about dignity than a lot of the other phrases we use. And I think it does resonate with me. So I think if you frame your decisions around the dignity of people Mm. as they perceive it, their personality, their position in life and yours, then I think you can reach decisions and communicate in ways that enable the world to keep moving and turning and hopefully improving. It's not just a matter of kind of hardening up or move out. I think we can learn to do things in a better way. A lot of life is painful, isn't it? Yes. Just it is. If you're not going to be able to eliminate pain for yourself or others, you can certainly improve the way you handle it. And it's deciding what you really want as being a manager, what you really want. And we did a session with Catherine Blinkhorn of Microsoft. She made a decision to step out of a management role back into a, an executive role and shared that with our young woman and about that consideration of does she feel like a failure? Does she feel she's let people down? That responsibility. But there's also a bravery around appreciating that for her life where she was at that point in time that wasn't the right fit a lot that you need to consider I think often the people that want to make decisions about other people's lives are exactly the people who shouldn't yes that's the problem I agree (laughs) with that (laughs) (laughs) the ones that kind of reluctantly end up in a position where they think oh actually uh, no okay I've got to do this or or that people naturally look to be leaders yes to some extent though that's a thing in Pagar culture or in the Pagar culture that I'm familiar with. I do see these different models in other cultures. I mean, I am aware in some other cultures, you know, Māori and Pacifica, for example, that young people are often marked out for leadership quite young Mm. and are educated and encouraged by their parents and uncles and aunties and prepared for roles. And I think that's a model that does work too because I think it does give an authentic and sense of leadership it's got disadvantages as well yes. but certainly the, the, the Pākehā model where most people who are making big decisions have either grabbed for them or stumbled into them is probably not ideal <laughs> <laughs> not the perfect model <laughs> well uh, no no So how do you decide what organizations you want to work with and how are you juggling so many roles with the specific focus that each requires? How am I juggling it was probably for others to judge. From my point of view, having lots of different things to think about is helpful. My mind intellectually likes to jump from thing to thing and to focus on it and try and draw out of one what is helpful to the other. I think I do okay with that. Look, I'm very lucky in that I really take on roles that do interest me or challenge me. So I don't take everyone I'm offered by any means just because I'm not very good. I'm not sure many of us are. I'm not very good at letting go of roles really got to force myself to do that I do is it a sense of responsibility or what you've grown with there I'd like to say it was a sense of responsibility but it's probably more about personal loss than responsibility I love the honesty Rob (laughs) yeah Um, yeah. things that are familiar and you're still kind of reasonably enjoying it's not easy to give up but sometimes you know you just have to in direct roles there's this kind of informal 9, 10, 11 year kind of role isn't long enough 
enough term, and I think probably it's more than enough, my experience would be that there's diminishing returns to what a director contributes in most situations at around about eight or nine years. Right. I think you tend to get probably a bit comfortable. I like the multiple focus and views. I stumbled into that early on in my career doing a number of things, whether they were side hustles or other memberships or putting my hands up to be involved in organizations. And it just enriches what you can bring in every other area, I think. Yeah, quite a few years ago, and I won't name them because it's a bit pejorative, but there was a director, a senior business person who I had a lot of respect for, who used to describe himself as a gunslinger, wandering around Western towns, dealing with situations. I think of myself more as a wandering minstrel. (laughs) It's not all that different. That's how I think it is. That's great. So what's the legacy you want others to remember you for as a leader? If they don't, I hope they're more focused on what's going to happen ahead of them than what happened in the past. I'm not interested in legacies. Love that. Because we need to take responsibility, right? Take some learnings and move forward. Use them well. Yeah, yeah. It's the next person's job, not mine. Yeah. (laughs) If they're looking backwards, they're going to make some pretty bad mistakes, aren't they? Well, you can't drive forward looking in the rearview mirror. So. Yeah. What's one piece of advice you have for candidates? Are you really sure you want this? I think a lot of people who are candidates for boards or even senior management positions where I get involved these days, I think often they think they want it or they think they should or they think something. So the real big question everyone's got to answer is, do I really want this? Do I understand it? Do I really want what it means? Because often people get into those positions and find they don't. So that's the key decision. If you really want it and you're capable, you do a good job, won't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing I like to say to people is whether you get it or whether you're not, very few people are uniquely qualified for any job. Yeah. There are multiple people who could have got this job that you've got, mm. but equally, if you'd miss it, doesn't mean you weren't well qualified for it. Yeah, that's the message I do try and leave. I know it's a disappointing time for those candidates that don't necessarily secure that role, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes it is so close and it is such a difficult decision, but they leave so crestfallen. It's trying to take some time to really remember all the positives and try not to focus on the one small thing that could have been that differentiator. Yeah, there's a decent chance they dodged a bullet, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> there are sometimes. <laughs> and what about one piece of advice for hiring managers? I think that dignity issue is really important. Respect the dignity of Great. everyone who has applied and is in front of you. Mm. And have some humility and recognise that some, I was going to say 50%, I don't know the portion, but some decent portion of the time you're going to make the wrong choice. You might do quite well if it's 50-50 in my experience. I'm not a good judge judge of how people will be when them. I sort of hope other people are better than me. Yeah, people are complex mm. and then it's not just the person you're employing today, there's obviously their life that happens in the background and so many other variables. I've got a battle of tendency to be like Oscar Wilde who once said that people who don't judge by first appearance just are awfully shallow and I think that's a problem I have. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're rounding up now. So is there anything else you'd like to share? Last words or a a story from uh, your career? No, I probably shared too much already. Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, so, look, no, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you and good luck with the work that you're doing. I love your enthusiasm for it and the thanks, thought Rob. you put into how you do it, which is, is absolutely critical in any job. So, good. Well done. From you, that's high praise indeed. So, thank you very much. Cheers, Rosie. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. 
I was so inspired by Rob's origin story with Dave Latelli, how impactful this has been on his life and the special bond that is obvious if you follow either of them on LinkedIn. Fantastic positivity from two men who have traveled very different paths and yet find so much empowerment from each other. I also love Rob's support for more senior women in leadership and on boards, something that I'm personally passionate about and work hard with entry and mid-level to connect, support and mentor women so they can be well positioned and confident when these opportunities arise. To see the full interview, head over to my YouTube channel for the extended video version and to find out more about the work Rob and his teams are involved with, check out the show notes for links. If you liked this episode of Rosie on Recruitment, please subscribe, review, share with your networks on your favorite social channels and tag me at Rosie Her Career. That's R-O-S-E-Y. I'd love to hear from you with any comments or questions to discuss how I can help you find the best human talent for your organization or to place you in your next dream role. Until next time, remember, be calmer, be kind, be better.